The last verse of 7 is verse 53, and this account goes to verse 11. So follow along as I read. It says, They went each to his own house, and that's the disciples and all, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Um, early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Sundays that we could come and we could gather. And Lord, again, we want to receive from you. Uh, we don't want to just uh, treat your word and the Bible as just a book like any other book we might have in our house. This is your word, Lord, and we believe it's alive and active and it's sharper than a sword. And so, Lord, would you speak to us today? Would you encourage us and build us up? Would you challenge us, Lord? Would you bring relief if that's the case? And would you even bring conviction, Lord, and repentance if that's what's needed? And so just lead us in this passage this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. If I was to ask you this morning, and I don't want you to answer this, so, and I just said, interact with me, and then I just said, don't interact with me. He is a confused man, okay? But if I was to ask you this morning, what does forgiveness and immorality and hypocrisy have in common, um, you might say, well, they have the Bible in common or themes in the Bible, some of you might be in, thinking more literally and say, well, they have nothing in common, but they really do. And these three, the area of forgiveness, the area of hypocrisy and immorality are really part of our passage this morning. You don't have to uh, be a rocket scientist to see in our reading that we just read. Um, without a doubt, I think this is one of the most loved passages there is in the Bible, um, at least by those who claim that Christ is their Lord and have a relationship with Him. We love it because it reeks of forgiveness and compassion, and those are things that we so want and love to have. And so we, um, we, have, we are guilty of sin like the women, but if we've experienced the forgiveness of Christ, then it's an amazing thing. And hopefully we also understand hypocrisy and we know that it can reside in us, okay? We come to Christ, and we are new creatures in Christ, okay? And yet, those old things of the flesh and the old ways are still very much there. And so we have to battle. And I just say that because we are going to see the scribes and Pharisees are, who are very hypocritical. And we want to make sure we don't say, I'm glad I'm not like them. Now, hopefully none of you are like them, 
but you understand that tendency can be there. We also understand at least to a degree that the scribes and the Pharisees, who these guys were, they're teachers of the law of that day. You guys, have, you, we've never lived like that. We've never had these uh, elevated teachers that are the authority in that sense and they rule in a way with an iron fist. But they were teachers of the law. They were legalistic. They were very much outward and guilty inwardly, if you will. And we know it can, that can reside in us as well, right? So we may not be a full-blown legalistic person that, you know, is just crazy, but we have that tendency if we're not careful. And if we're not careful, we can want our idea of justice more than God's will. And that's really what they wanted to see happen. We also can't ignore the crowd who arrived at the temple this morning when Jesus was there and soon found themselves listening to Jesus teach. And I could just picture that. I'm sorry that so many of you have never been there. I've been in this area, and when you've been somewhere, it's easy just to close your eyes and picture what that must have been like that morning. Just think of this. Just think of a cool summer morning, the quietness that we experience in the morning, and all of a sudden Jesus is there, and, he, and he's going to teach. And so it's, it's, it's an awesome thing. And they, they really are, the, the crowd is a very little part, if any, if you will, today. And yet by what Jesus said and did, there is no doubt it impacted them. There were people that were seeking Jesus, were, who loved Jesus, and by what they saw, it no doubt impacted their life. That's one of the reasons they think this passage is included in the scriptures. That's going to become clear in just a minute, is because of how many people that it impacted when it was done. And so there are many characters in our passage, but you see there's really three groups or three. There is the woman who gets found in the act of adultery. There is the scribes and Pharisees, so we don't know how many that is, but that puts us, of, I would say, probably a, a few. And then there is Jesus, and that's the really the three main characters. And then one last thing I want you to see, and then we're going to get into this, is that we see that holiness and righteousness is something God wants to be a part of our life. And that comes out, if you peek all the way down again, it's those last eight words of verse 11, where what does he say? Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. There's the righteousness and the holiness that God wants to be in our lives. So there's a, there's a lot in this section. I think you're going to see when we're done, there's a lot more than you were thinking. But what I'd say to you as your pastor is just say, Lord, speak to me. Have an open heart and just say, Lord, is there something in this passage you want to show me and speak to me on? Now, being true to the word. And again, at Calvary Chapel, we like that. We want to teach you the word. We want to be true to what the word says. And we want to be true to the truth that comes forth about his word. We've got to note something about this passage, which I'm sure some of you have already seen, that this passage is not in some of the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. Do you see that in your Bible somewhere? It's either going to be a passage at verse 57 uh, I mean, 53 to 11, that they put brackets around, or there's going to be a footnote, a side note, or something there in your Bible, unless you're using a really old Bible, that tells you this was not in the earliest manuscripts, okay? And there's a lot written about this. I want you to know that. 
And I wasn't going to go into that today because it would take up the whole morning. But if that's something that interests you, A, you could research it yourself. Now, if you go on the web, be careful because everything on the web isn't good. But if you need some help, I could point you in a direction and give you even some information that would go more into this passage than you talk to me afterwards. So we're not going to talk about it now. Most agree that, and again, this is going to surprise some of you, most agree it was not an original part of the Gospel of John, and that's why it gets placed in the brackets it does. And so earlier and better Greek manuscripts don't have this passage. That does not mean some manuscripts don't have it. Some do have it, okay? It differs, this is interesting, it differs in writing style and vocabulary. So that isn't hard for you to understand, even if you're not one that kind of digs into this stuff. You could take the style of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and if you studied them and you were that type of whatever they call that, you would be able to tell, even if you weren't told, oh, this is, you would tell the difference. They had their own style. It's like me. I was joking with somebody today or this week about all the letters I used to write, wink. And, uh, and she doesn't do it much anymore, and I'm glad, but there were times when she'd pull old letters out in amidst the family and read these letters that I wrote, and uh, they were a hoot, because your pastor at one time really did not know how to spell, and uh, it was just funny, but I'm glad my wife kept them, and she cherishes them, don't you, dear? Yes, she does. <laughs> oh, Lord, forgive her for her hypocrisy. No, but anyway, <laughs> she does. She does. Anyway, so... Um, they say, and this might surprise you, that it seems like it might be Luke's style of writing. And again, would you just make a note? I don't want you to run there, but in Luke 21, 38, it might be where it fits better. So we don't know for sure, okay? But I just want to tell you that. It also, another thing you need to understand, it interrupts the flow of John 7 into John 8, Okay, and again, we're going to get into this text in just a minute, but I want to tell you this stuff. In John 7, 37 to 52 is a section, okay? It's part of the, it, it, it's, it, it, it's part of the thing, the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacle. And in that part, water was a part of the last day. And what did Jesus do? He got up and declared himself to be living water. If you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. Next week, I think we'll be in 812, You'll see it picks back up with the Feast of Tabernacle. And here it's with the uh, lighting lamp ceremony that took place as there was a water part of a ceremony of it. And Jesus declares, I'm the light of the world. So in the midst, this thing gets injected. And they say that shows that it wasn't, that's another reason why it wasn't probably of John. What seems true is this, and this is what's important. It's widely circulated. It was widely circulated during the early church. And it eventually made its way into ancient manuscripts. And don't make the mistake of saying, oh, we are smarter today than the early church because we have computers. We, have, we can research so much more, so much faster. You have to remember in the early church, they knew their research. You read the book of Matthew. He quotes the Old Testament more than any other book because his audience are Jewish people. And that shows you this was a man that knew the manuscripts. So it was, in a way, harder for them, but I think they retained a whole lot more. 
And so it was circulated. It made its way into ancient, it did make its way into ancient manuscripts. And I believe we can teach it and not have any fear about it. The church accepted it. It doesn't contradict any other scriptures. And we can easily see Jesus doing exactly what we're going to see today in this passage. And so again, not to go into it, there are countless biblical scholars that have no problem with this passage. And I like what F.F. Bruce himself said. They constitute, speaking of these verses, a fragment of authentic gospel material. Okay, so that's all I'm going to tell you about it. The rest of that digging is going to be on your own if, if you desire to. Now, the passage will break into four sections this morning. Can you see that? That's pretty small, isn't it? I should have made the font bigger. I apologize. But if you can see that, I'm happy for you. We're going to look at the location. That's the first two verses, the charges and the attack, the response, and then finally the verdict and Jesus' counsel. So look at verse 53 again and to verse 2. And so it says, They went each to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So that's the location. Where is what we're reading today and studying today happen? It happens in the temple. And more accurately, it happens in one of those courtyard portions of the temple. I would probably say the Gentile courtyard so that Gentiles could not be excluded. And you could go back if you can't remember. Can you picture the Old Testament? I mean, the New Testament uh, temple and the huge courtyards. It's called the Temple Mount today. There was massive courtyards in this area. And so that's where this takes place. And notice it says, it was the very first thing in the morning when it says early in the morning. That can be translated at daybreak. So you guys that get up at daybreak, amen. You're being very biblical, okay? <laughs> but anyway, that's when it took place. I think, like I said earlier, I think at times, and I don't know where it comes from, I think it comes back from being a Seattle Times paper boy. And I'd get up early in the morning on Sundays, and I'd be out on those streets delivering papers when it was just me and the birds, and it was quiet, and it was some of the most peaceful times. I still love it today. I'll sit in my backyard, and I just sit there and let this quietness minister to me. And I, so I think that's part of the scene we have here. It's daybreak. The temple isn't hustling and bustling so much yet, although it is during, you know, if it, if it, if it falls into a, most things with the temple, it could be busy there, but it's early in the morning. And seeing him, seeing Jesus says, all the people came to him. And I don't know what that means. Does that mean everybody that was in the temple that day? Could be. Does it mean those who could see him only? Or does it mean just a lot of people came to him? Doesn't matter. But they saw him and they went to him. So he has definitely, um, he has a, a following. And so Jesus sat down and taught. And that was the proper position of a Jewish rabbi. They would sit down when they taught. Okay. And so verse 3, the charge and the attack, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. That's just the first part of verse 6. And so I don't know about you, and I know sometimes I have more a chance to think of the, about the passage than you do, but I think it's strange that at the same time Jesus, it's early morning, is teaching, the scribes and Pharisees seem to already be on their third cup of coffee. 
<laughs> and so they all of a sudden bring this woman who has been caught in adultery right into this scene. And you have to understand, that would it just like, I don't know how to describe it. You have this scene that seems to be awesome, peaceful, and everything else. And it's just dis- disrupted by, if you will, this violence that just comes into it. And it's just like, whoa, what's going on here? Okay. And so it seems it's an odd place in time. Unless we know what we know from verse 6, that they were seeking to trap Jesus. They were seeking to charge Jesus. They were seeking to kill Jesus. Let's not mix words. That's exactly what's going on here. That's what they wanted to do. And I think if we were there that morning, I think we'd be struck by the crassness of the scribes and the Pharisees and just the scene in general. Especially if you have a love for the Lord, you would just be sitting there going, whoa, you know. And how she was brought before them, I wonder. It seems to me that she's not going to be willingly going, hey, come on, you've sinned. And yeah, it's punishable by death, so we're going to bring you before Jesus and you're done. I think she's resisting going. I think she's being dragged and forced to go. But you figure that one. How's she dressed? Interesting thing to think about. And again, I'm not trying to be rude or anything, but she probably came from a situation where there was total nudity and now she's covered somehow. Did they throw a sheet around her or whatever? I don't know. But, and was there fear on her face? I think there was incredible fear on her face because she knew in their law that this was punishable by death and definitely seems to lack any tenderness, any compassion, right? It's just this scene that would make us sick to our stomach. And not, again, not to be crude, not to be gross. When it says, look at your scripture, it says she was caught in the act of adultery. It could have just said she was caught in adultery, but there's a reason. The scripture never puts too many words in or too few words in. She was literally caught while adultery was being committed is what it means. Okay, And that's interesting, isn't it? So the scribes and the Pharisees, or a portion of the scribes and the Pharisees, somebody in that group had to be witnesses, at least two, had gone in there and seen what was going on and dragged her out of the place. And so she's caught in that act. And a requirement of the law was the accusers had to witness the offense. In other words, in this case, the accusers had to witness the sexual sin in order to charge, bring a charge against her. And that's why I said it had to be at least two witnesses. And so we know at least two of them that are there that day said, I was there. I'm the one that saw it. Okay. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll says. I love this. He says, within them, with them, they dragged like a squirming dog on a leash, a disheveled woman, hastily clothed, barefooted and humiliated. A woman, they testified, caught in the very act of adultery. A woman taken abruptly from the bedroom where she was some man's sexual object and insensitively dragged to the temple where she now became a political object used to bait the trap set for Jesus. And that helps us, doesn't it? And somewhere, something that is easy to miss is we know that Jesus is sitting down and teaching, verse 2. Okay, now just track with me and think about this more afterwards. You might not be able to get this. It would seem when these scribes and Pharisees with the, came with the accused women that I think it says, it doesn't say this, but Jesus had to stand up. Because verse 6 says he bends down. 
So we start, he's sitting down teaching. Verse 6, all of a sudden he's going to bend down and write in the sand. And I get the impression that all of a sudden when this happened, you see the power of God, the authority of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden stand. And it's, I, I can't imagine what that must have been like when he stood because he knew what was going on. And really he was going to have nothing of it. And I think that's important. And so he does that. And notice this, you guys. He is under control. He doesn't respond verbally. That's control. You and I would be saying something. He doesn't say anything. And, and he has tact. And he writes these words in the sand. Now, he didn't always do that. The guy's Bible study a few weeks ago, we were in Matthew 23 studying the seven woes of Jesus. And in that passage, he calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, serpents, brood of vipers. So if you think, well, Jesus never did that. Oh, yeah, he did do that. By the way, um, the term scribes and Pharisees um, never occurs any other place in the Gospel of John except for right here. And that's another reason they don't think this was written by John, not to confuse you. You find it in Matthew, but you never find scribes and Pharisees any other place than this right here. But that's, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, but it just kind of gives you junk. So anyway, Jesus is silent. And I, th I, I think when he goes from the position of sitting to standing, it just says a lot about what he is thinking and about his authority and what he is about to do to these guys who are just a bunch of hypocrites that are leading the people astray. And you see the trap when they see if he goes against the word. Verse 5, he says, they say, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And he, listen to this. The Greek can literally be translated here, you. What do you say? And if let me find it here so I can kind of track with you. Um, when he says that to them, what do you say? Um, they said this to test him they might have. Jesus bent down, look at verse 6, wrote down in his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, do you see that at the beginning of verse 7? So you're thinking that all of a sudden he stands up, everything goes silent. They're not getting it. He bends down and they're still in his face. They want him. And they're just not stopping it. And so that's the idea. And they were right that the law did Prohibit adultery, Exodus 20.14. And the penalty was death, Leviticus 20.10. The three greatest sins in Jewish thought were adultery and murder uh, and um, adultery. Those were the three greatest sins, all, by the way, punishable by death. And so what was Jesus to do? If he said stone her, then he, he's just, if he said don't stone her, he's going against the law. He's going against the word, and it's going to discredit him. It's going to discredit that he's the Messiah. If he says stone her, well, he'd be keeping the law, but where is the compassion uh, for sinners? And what would people all of a sudden think about him when he all of a sudden says, put her to death? Plus, he could be turned over to Rome because technically the Jews couldn't stone her without the Romans' permission. And so if he did this, they could turn him over and they would have him in their trap. And so um, they didn't care about adultery. You know something that is glaringly missing in the passage? Somebody go ahead and say it. The, where's the guy? Yeah, 
where's the guy, you know? It takes two to tangle, as they say, right? And so she's caught. But, and there's an interesting thought on this if you study this passage. Some feel he is there amongst the scribes and the Pharisees that he's one of them. Uh, I mean, that guy is there. But anyway, he's not there. And the reason why there's no man, you guys, is they didn't care about the charge of adultery. All they cared about was trapping Jesus to put this, what they felt was a false Messiah, to death once and for all. Listen to what one writer said. I thought this was so good. Adultery was a charge at the time, the Sanhedrin. Who's a Sanhedrin? I can't hear you. The ruling, it would be like our Supreme Court in that culture. It says, at that time, the Sanhedrin never enforced adultery, as many of the leaders of Israel were guilty of the same charge. So it's kind of hard to condemn somebody for something you are just as guilty of. And by the way, can I just say something today? I was thinking as we were worshiping, and I just thought, Lord, help us not to forget where we came from. You know, and I'm not thinking of anybody specifically. I just know that if, unless you knew Christ from a young age and you were raised in just a wonderful Christian home, there's a good chance that you did things that the Bible would consider sins that obviously needed to repent of. And I was just thinking today as we were worshiping, I said, Lord, I have been guilty of many things before I came to know you. And that's a good reminder for us, isn't it? Because we don't want to ever point fingers when we know what it is to be that same type of person. And so the response, 6b, go down to 8, Jesus bent down and wrote with his fingers on the ground, and they continued to ask him, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. And so being asked, what do you say we should do with her, Jesus does this amazing thing. He bends down and he writes in the dirt and the sand that would be very common in that part of the world. And he starts writing out things that they could read and that they could understand. Now, we're not told what he said. I was joking with somebody earlier that um, I said to them, I said, well, he says, we don't know. I said, well, I do. God has given me special revelation. I'm going to share it this morning. We don't know what Jesus said, okay? But here's some ideas. Some say maybe the words of verse 7 Jesus wrote in the sand, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. You could see that, can't you? I, I think that'd be pretty convicting, you know? All of a sudden, you know, and maybe some of those guys had stones in their hands. They're ready to do it. They wouldn't do it in the temple area there. But you could see that. Some say he might have cited a portion of the law, maybe the prohibition in Exodus 23.1 against being a malicious witness. And they were being a malicious witness. Others say he listed the sins of the scribes and Pharisees who dragged her before Jesus. And I think that's a very possibility too. Others say he listed the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees. Swindoll says this, maybe he wrote the name of the man who had committed adultery with her. Could you imagine what that was if they knew who it was and he was there? After, only, after all, only half of the criminal, criminals were there. Maybe the second time he bent down and he wrote, it was counter charges against the scribes and the Pharisees naming their secret sin. But thinking they had Jesus, they didn't have him, did they? They didn't have him. 
They never can trap. You can't trap God, you guys. So verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before her. You've got to put yourself in this scene. You've got to see it in your mind. This is a powerful scene. It's morning. It's early morning. The sun's rising. Let me assure you, there are birds chirping and singing. It's a wonderful area of the world. And all of a sudden, it goes from this amazing time where Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Son is teaching. And remember, people were always amazed and just, where did this man get this wisdom as he taught? Then all of a sudden, it's just rudely interrupted with this crassness of the scene. And now all of a sudden, guess what? It goes back. He's not teaching anymore. Scribes and Pharisees have disappeared. They got out of there as fast as they could. And the crowd is probably still there. And now it's just Jesus. You know, he's alone. You know, it's interesting. Oftentimes, something will happen during the service and um, maybe one of you need to get up and leave and afterwards you'll come to me and say, hey, I'm sorry I had to get up during your teaching and stuff like that. Most of the time, I am so focused that I don't see half the stuff that I'm being told I should have saw. And my ushers, it drives them nuts at times, or it drives, you know, it just, anyway, you understand? And I have no problem that there is a multitude, there's a crowd sitting there in this scene, but Jesus is just looking at this woman. And this woman is looking at Jesus. And it is an amazing thing now that takes place. You think the attitude, the atmosphere has changed a little bit? I do. I think it has changed in an amazing direction as this has taken place. And so, One by one, the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees left. And did you notice it said the oldest first? Now, I don't know why. It's only speculation that that we can say that. But maybe could they have more unconfessed sin? Did they have more secret sin that they needed to confess and they weren't willing to confess it? We don't know. Maybe there's, there, in a one way, there is a wisdom that says, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to get out of here now. And the younger ones are just kind of waiting. to let, And pretty soon, every single one of them is gone. I think what he wrote in the sand was very direct and was very personal, that it caused these guys who were thinking they were going to trap him, they're now fleeing the scene. And so they go. And notice it says, this is interesting. Did any of you, I wonder if any of you picked this up, you could tell me later. Verse 9, it says, when they heard this, I picked that up instantly. I said, wait a minute, when they heard this, shouldn't it say, when they saw what he wrote? And I thought, oh no, the word of God can be spoken in more ways than verbal, and we hear it, don't we? And I thought that was interesting. Jesus' words written are just as powerful as his words spoken, aren't they? Remember the two on the road to Emmaus? See? And so it is powerful. They heard it. And that's interesting at times because have you ever had something come upon you and you realize it's God impressing something upon your heart and your mind? And it could be both ways. It could be something to exhort you, to encourage you, to build you up. It could also be something to convict you and you know it. And so, you know, you don't, know, you don't need something to be said to you directly, you know. It happens all the time. I pray for it every time we teach it here at church. That there's a work that is going on right now that I may get to know about, I may not get to know about. But God is moving. God is speaking to you and to you and to you. And he might be speaking differently. And it's amazing when the Lord does that, how he does that. 
And so notice Jesus stands. And again, I just have to point this out because it hit me. I think it's very different when he stands this time from when he was teaching and he stood up to face the scribes and Pharisees. I think now he knows they're gone. Now is not the position to say, stoop down and look up at her. Now's the time to stand up and to look in her face. And you know, I don't know about you, um, have you ever been in a situation when you are in great need and maybe it's emotionally or something else and somebody comes and they are before you and it's so powerful and it's so healing and everything else? Well, I don't think we need to debate that when Jesus would come before you, it had to be powerful. It had to be amazing. And so he stands, and it's a different thing. He said to the unnamed woman, and she's not named, Women, where are they? No one has condemned you. And I think of the tenderness that Jesus is showing here. You know what it reminds me of? It's another passage. You should pick this up now if you've been in the church for a while. Your pastor loves these type of passages. One of my favorite passages in the scripture is when Mary Magdalene, by the way, very interesting background with Mary compared to this story as well. When Mary Magdalene went to the tomb that resurrection morning and Jesus wasn't there and they thought someone had taken the body, they th she's thinking, what is this horrible thing that has happened? And she turns around, look at what it says here on the screen. It says, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now here it is. Jesus said to him, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the garden, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her one word, Mary. And she turned and she said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I think that's this story too, guys. I love that passage. I love that passage. It speaks of our lives at times where we're confused, we're busy, we're just like, ah, and we need so to hear from the Lord. And the Lord will show up and he'll go, Mary, Mary. And she knew the voice. She knew the voice. I've got three grandkids. I got more than that, but the three youngest ones, I don't need to see them. They can talk to me anytime and I know who they are. And you know what? They know grandpa. Jojo called the other day. Jojo's a little over two. It was so sweet. She called the other day and she's just laying on daddy's shoulder. Oh, FaceTime, right? Don't you? I love FaceTime with kids. She's just laying on and she, and Jer Jeremy goes, aren't you going to say something? I said, no, nah, she doesn't need to say something. She just likes to look at grandpa. <laughs> I don't think she said anything to me, but she's just so happy just to look at grandpa. She loves grandpa, you know, and, and I think that's what we see here is going on, that Jesus just full of compassion. And so with great tenderness, he says to her, neither do I condemn you. You guys, we don't understand how huge that was. This was a culture, unlike our culture today that we outlaw capital punishment and everything. This was a culture where they would put people to death for this sin. And it was brutal. You think that would be, yes, it was very brutal as, as they would stone a person to death. I read that with men at times, there was a, a punishment in the, I think it's in the Mishnah, that they had put a rope around a man's neck. They would cover it with a scarf, first of all, not to mark his neck. There would be two individuals that would pull until he was dead for this sin. 
type of thing for the man. But that was the type of culture. But listen, when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, that was powerful. What do we read in John? You know John 3.16, don't you? You should know John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So often on people that don't know Christ are always making the accusation against Christ, the Bible, and Christians that all we're about is condemnation. And you know that's not true. That is not what we're about. If that's what we are about, we are all hypocrites because we are all deserving of condemnation. But we are about forgiveness because that's what we have experienced. So let me close with two things. Number one, and I think these are very important things. Number one, this passage tells us there is forgiveness of sin in Christ. To not condemn her was to forgive her. Do you understand that? Condemned here means to produce sentence against and judge or condemn. To judge someone as guilty and thus subject to punishment. And this is what sets Christianity apart from other religions. It sets Christianity apart, by the way, from self-help therapy, from self-help programs. Be careful of all that stuff out there, you guys. So much just garbage. It isn't going to take you uh, to the Lord and His help that man comes up with. There is real forgiveness of sin in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that is where only forgiveness takes place. It's in Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, God's justice and God's mercy are amazingly, wonderfully, beautifully reconciled. Being sinless and holy, God hates sin. No doubt about it. But being a God of love, He loves mankind. That is His creation. And the two are reconciled by Jesus dying for mankind's sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, He took on man's sin and thus made reconciliation possible. He bore the wrath of God that had to be satisfied. And it was satisfied at him. So that's the first thing. Two, don't miss this. We are to live differently. I want you to remember this about this passage. It's a passage about forgiveness and it's a passage about living differently. Look again at the end of verse 11. What does it say? From now on, sin no more. That's what he told this woman. In other words, live differently than you once lived. It means don't let sin be a pattern in your life. It doesn't mean never commit a sin again. That's an impossibility, I believe. There was a doctrine years ago about sinless perfection, and I had to deal with it in this church one time. I had people upset with me. I had people leave the church because that started to come out. I said, no, stop. That's not going to happen. We do not reach a point where we do not sin, but that's not what we're talking about here. When he says sin no more, it's that continual practice. And he's saying, that is not to be the mark of a believer. Yes, you will sin sometimes. The other day, my wife called me about something, and I, and I snapped at her. Anything else new? You know, I do that. You guys know I do that. And don't get me wrong, it wasn't a violent snapping, but next thing I know, I knew where she was, so I just texted her said, well, I said, hey, sorry for snapping at you. You are wonderful. You are capable of making these decisions. I apologize. And, and as always, you forgave me, didn't you, honey? <laughs> She's not shaking her head this time. <laughs> might have to deal with that later, right, John? <laughs> I think some flowers might be in order. <laughs> but anyway, see what I mean? 
And it's such a thing, it's so different. We're to live differently. That sin is to be offended. Remember chapter 5 when Jesus healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda? It says in verse 14, afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And you could see how one might think that if there's forgiveness in Christ, then we can just go on sinning. Guys, come on back up. You're okay. We can just go on sinning. But don't Jesus' words here say the opposite? They do. They said, don't sin. I think of Paul's words in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely not. We'd say, are you crazy thinking that way? We're not to do that. How can we who died to sin live in it? And so we want to close now with a time of worship. And this is a time for us just to praise the Lord in light of what we've seen, to thank Him, to incorporate the Scriptures and the Word of God now in just a, another time of worship, and just to praise Him, to thank Him, and even to confess. And again, I, I don't know everything that's going on in this room, but I would just say that if there is something that you have been convicted by this morning, do you understand that during this song, that you could pray, you could pray silently, and your heart can connect with God's heart, and God will forgive you if you confess that sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us.